today on The Film Printer, an in-depth interview with Mike Hall and Chris Socker of Showhawk Media. Over the last few years, this dynamic duo has woven together their love of both filmmaking and online business to create a pretty rad new documentary called Generation Freedom. In the process, though, they've also built out a business model and a distribution strategy for the film that's unlike any that I've ever seen before. And just six months after launching it, the film has already broken even, and the future is looking way brighter than that. There's a lot of revenue potential for this film. Anyhow, this was a great conversation with loads of useful information for entrepreneurial filmmakers, and I really hope you dig it. Let's go. Hey friend, welcome to Filmmaker Freedom. This is a show for ambitious indie filmmakers who want to make work they're proud of, build audiences, cut out the middlemen, and earn a damn good living selling directly to their fans. My name is Rob Hardy, and I'm a filmmaker and a marketing consultant who's worked with a number of brands and startups to help them connect with online audiences and grow their businesses. Now, in the solo episodes of this show, I like to share direct lessons that I've learned from that experience and help you build an audience and sell your films. But truth be told, my perspective is far from the only one. That's why I like to balance those shows out with long form interviews with other entrepreneurial indie filmmakers. The goal is to share conversations that are really substantive, inspiring, and genuinely honest and transparent because there's just not enough transparency in the world of indie film, especially when it comes to the business side of things. And one last thing before we begin, I just wanna thank my good friends over at Musicvine for sponsoring this show. Over the years, I've used just about every music licensing platform out there, and I can say without hesitation that Musicvine is at the very top of my list. The quality and uniqueness of the music are outstanding. The prices are reasonable, and the design and functionality of their website are second to none. It's just a pure pleasure to use. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, just go to musicvine.com and use the code filmfreedom for 25% off your next order. All right, now let's get into today's interview. So like I mentioned in the intro, Chris and Mike have been working together for years, not even just for years. They've been working together since they were kids. Um, and they just there's a there's a great chemistry and camaraderie there. And they're kind of just this uh, creative and business dream team, which you'll definitely be able to hear when you listen to the interview. Um, so I hope you're excited because this was a damn good conversation and lots of fun as well. And there's just so many useful takeaways for anybody who wants to make a living with their own original films. So without any further ado, here's Chris and Mike. Let's start at the beginning, which is generally a good place to start. <laughs> um, <laughs> talk to me about how you both got into film and met each other, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's a bit of a long story. I mean, we've known each other for 20 years uh we met in sixth grade fifth or sixth grade we met in fourth and, grade didn't like each oh, other and then became from oh wow well grade. we didn't need to go into that <laughs> i have the memory uh, no so yeah we met in fourth grade and the first project we did together was um we were in the sixth grade <clears throat> we got paired up in a i think it was a history 
assignment. And that was the first time where we actually made a video project together. We had a bunch of other kids um, in the project with us, but Chris and I took the helm and we decided to rip off the matrix because that's what was big at the time. And we choreographed all these kids. We came up with the costumes, uh, came up with the story structure, the fight scenes, fight scenes. You know, we had, I think we had some guns in there, which was not really yeah, Ill- advised. It, it was very ill advised. And we actually got a call from our teacher to our home, uh, our parents' homes being like, I'm so impressed with what they did. I, my, my heart, we thought for sure we were getting in trouble. We thought we were in trouble, but our our teacher called our parents and was like, I'm so impressed with these guys, um, their project skills and, and the video they put together. But I was terrified because I thought we were totally in trouble. Yeah. So that was, that was the first time we, we really made a project together. Um, but yeah, I mean, before that I was, I was always into acting Chris was always into movies and artistic stuff. Um, yeah, I had uh, always drawn from a very young age. And then I was just a huge film fanatic. And my parents, to varying degrees, got me into film or yeah. films more from a, like audience member standpoint. And then yeah. uh, I had an uncle who got me really into like the classics from Hitchcock to Chinatown and Blade Runner. And so it all kind of coalesced when I met Mike and we started making these little projects. Yeah. Did you get into trouble? Did you guys swear from the very beginning? You're like, we know we're going to be the dream team and we're going to work together forever and ever. I thought you were just asking if we always swore like cursed. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Actually, that would be, can we, is this a clean podcast? Yeah. That's um, a good question. Executive decision because this is the first, uh, this is the first interview I've done. I'm going to say no. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's the go first one. Go yeah. Go I've on. got a couple others on the books, but. Well, fuck you, yeah. Let's do yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> I regret it already. No. <laughs> I love it. Cool. Uh, in answer to that question, I think, I mean, yeah, we formed our very first company together when we were freshmen or sophomores in high school. Um, and it was a legit LLC. We sat down and we were like, we're doing this. We had official, <laughs> we had official production meetings and it was so silly. Cause we would be like in the lunchroom, like the weird kids off to the side, having our production meetings. But we totally thought we were like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, like we're the future filmmaking. <laughs> and slowly like the table grew, like more people would, <laughs> would like exactly. become a part of these meetings and these conversations and scheming these ideas. So exactly. yeah, I guess maybe it was kind of contagious and it was fun. It was cool. It was like you get to know how to uh, interact with other people and relay that vision in a not so serious yeah. environment. Sounds like you guys were like, ambitious overachievers from the start like in high school i was (laughs) we're not going to go to what i was doing in high school Um, (laughs) no i gotta draw the line somewhere i already let you guys have bad language so i'm putting my foot down Um, but it sounds also like you were bitten by the the entrepreneurial bug early on um totally is that something that's just like core to who you guys are um was it is it just there uh, definitely for me. Um, I was always that as a bit of a goober, I'd be out front of my parents' house setting up a little lemonade stand when no one would be coming by. I actually remember my parents gave me a book. 
it was called better than a lemonade stand it had all these ideas in there with um all the things that you could do beyond just making a lemonade stand as a kid and i came up with the idea to make these like these costume masks and then sell it from the lemonade stand so i'd be out front basically like yelling to people crossing the street hey you want a spider-man mask and my brother gives me so much shit to this day he says he's like i felt so bad for you seeing you on the street corner yelling spider-man mask and like no one would buy it and so that I, it actually that that taught me failure earlier on which is great but i think that shows that i was a true entrepreneur from day one I don't know, but for me yes yeah, I don't know. I'd never had an experience like that for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I think like it was sort of almost like Mike kind of finished my sentences in a way in that regard. Like I'm Lebanese, so there's definitely like a little <laughs> a little bit of it coursing through my veins and a lot of like uh, the uh, upstarter and uh, negotiation is big. I had to negotiate for everything as a child. So that's like with your parents. <laughs> Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, oh, yeah. Fun. I don't know if you know any Lebanese people, but everything is a negotiation, but... and everything is like a legal defense of what you think and feel at every time. Um, so, but I think it's a good thing. But in any case, like I guess those things were sort of inherent. But um, I never really, I don't, I, I never really gave much consideration to like the business end of my creativity until probably Mike and I, I think it just sort of naturally evolved too. It wasn't like an early on, like we're going to make things and we're going to sell things that like began, right. began as like, we're going to make things. And then the logical progression was like, how do we do this all the time? And yeah. I think Mike's more entrepreneurial side came out yeah. throughout that process as it relates Definitely. to our creativity. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, we were always interested in doing it fun and interesting projects. It it wasn't always just movies. I mean, we tried to make a video game at one point. And in the back of my mind, my dad's an accountant. So I was always like, how do we, where do we make the money? How does this happen? So that was always flowing in the back of my mind. And then I would try and slip it in with Chris because he's the creative dude. And I'd be like, hey man, you know we can make money from this, right? <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Mike's so my like Spengali. A, yeah, you've got a, a yin and yang thing going together. You kind of complete each other and I guess are, so, yeah. are a total package. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you guys have made a couple of features at this point, right? Like I know you've probably made at least two or three, but probably more. Um, yeah. yeah. What's yeah. Uh, Walk me through those. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, the, go ahead, Mike. Uh, the very first that we made was... Um, it's called the Painted City. We made it. God, we were were we twenty one, Chris? Twenty? I think it was between uh, twenty and twenty one. I think we finished it when we finished it. We shot on my twenty first birthday, so I know that. Yeah, we and put then, it out like uh, right after my twenty second birthday. Yeah. I think. I think that sounds right. Um, yeah, and that took us about two years in total to make. Yeah. Um, at the time, I was going to college down at the University of Oregon in Eugene, and Chris was living up in Portland. And so we basically had to shoot on weekends. Um, so I would drive up to Portland, or Chris would come down to Eugene and brainstorm a little bit. 
Um, and the reason it took so long is because we basically did it on a shoestring budget. Um, we didn't have a ton of time with our classes. Um, so it was, it was quite a long process. And because of that, our, our tastes changed quite a bit during that process as well. It was, again, it was a two year period. So and it's like your, your formative, like growing up years, yeah, <laughs> like exactly. everything kind of, you think, of, especially like Rob, you probably get this, like from a like creative standpoint, like the amount that you kind of expose yourself to in the years between like 18 to like 25 and your entire perspective of like cinema can change dramatically in that period. At least that's what happened for me. Oh, it happened to me too. 100%. Yeah, like I, I started getting into like, I was already pretty into the French new wave, but I started getting into like the Italian neorealism neo and like Wong Kar Wai and like all of these like new brand new ways of sort of producing a cinematic vision entered my, my sphere. And it was like, all of a sudden the thing that we started making just yeah. <laughs> began to morph according to these new decisions. So, yeah. yeah. So what happened when this thing was done? Did you go festivals? <laughs> Did you just shelve it forever because it was horrible? <laughs> oh, man. No, we, we submitted it to festivals and we held a premiere in front of about 500 people. And that was a bit of a, traumatic experience very <laughs> rough very <laughs> rough how'd you get 500 people out. that's a lot of people yeah. for a premiere it was a lot of people we, well, we were i think we yeah we, good at rallying people yeah <laughs> well and i also think right. that we had like amassed like a lot of support among people that we knew over the years just because i think people kind of knew us as yeah. like that rob i'm sure like to some extent like i, I feel like every the filmmaker in every group or every family or every like gets this, like you sort of like build, you rally like your local community of friends and family and friends of friends and friends of family who are kind of yeah. like interested in what you're doing. And I think that, that was sort of the crescendo of that. Yeah. Until you ask them to video. contribute to your Kickstarter for the 15th Absolutely. time. And they're just yeah. like, Nope. You're blocked now. Or you ask yeah. them to show up to a, a mess of a movie and <laughs> they have to deal with the, the consequences. They, of it. they go through the traumatic experience with you and yeah. everyone holds hands. <laughs> yeah. And you can't tell who's more traumatized you or them. <laughs> but yeah. no, I mean, at that point we had put out so many short films. I mean, I think they were all along for the ride and they, I mean, our short films were so successful and people had seen them and really enjoyed them. And so they were really eager to see this feature. And it was just, it was a bit of a mess of a movie. Yeah, gloves came off. Yeah, I remember sitting in the the projection booth with Chris, just like taking swigs of whiskey. Like, (laughs) oh my God, this is like... It's not hitting any of the notes. People are not laughing at the right points. People are not clapping at the right points. And it was just like a slow downward spiral. Yeah, one person got up and walked out. I remember that. And that was like... But I think my impulsive response was like, fuck them. And then <laughs> like, when I really looked back, I was like, A, I probably would have walked out too. And B, it was more... I. I could have seen the writing on the wall then, but I was just so in delusion land of like, 
Yeah. Maybe they had to go to the bathroom and just didn't come back. <laughs> he never came yeah. back. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was um, that was a rough that was a rough experience. So that's what happened to that film. And it just sort of fizzled. And I think it sort of coalesced with that weird time uh where you know we made it on a uh Panasonic, the DVX 100. Hell yeah, DVX. Was like, yeah, it was like a total watershed moment. And, you know, we were not, based on your reaction, as well as history, we were not the only people who were making movies on DVX 100s. And then there was suddenly this huge influx of films that were hitting festivals. Not to say that our film wasn't extremely flawed and that had to do with why it didn't get in but it is to say that we were submitting in that period where suddenly where once they were getting a few hundred submissions they were getting thousands of submissions and the bar for entry just escalated and i think that having to kind of like mike i think you would agree with this but like having to like parse through the emotions of being still attached to the work that you made no matter how flawed it is it's still kind of your baby yeah and then so you, you're kind of like gripping to that, but then you're getting turned away from festivals and things. So you have to kind of put together all the elements in the equation. Yeah. Um, was a big learning experience about what do festivals actually mean now? Yeah. You know, what, what kind of films work in festivals? Would this film work anywhere? Is this something we want to replicate? Is it, you know, there was a lot of lessons to be learned from that. Totally. Yeah. And I think also like, we put all of our expectations on this one film. Like I said, we worked on, we worked on it for two years and we put all our eggs in one basket. And so it hurt, it cut so deep when it didn't go well. And that is something that was the biggest lesson I took away from it personally is you can't put all of your expectations on one project, you know, like we'll, we'll likely produce something someday that doesn't do super well and that's okay because we're still producing other things. We're putting a lot of stuff out into the world. And I think that that was something that I really had to come and and realize as a younger person was that I can't have so many expectations on one project. I didn't learn that as quickly as Mike did, I don't think. But I <laughs> no, seriously, but like I did it does resonate with me more now and more over the past four or five years as I really investigate this notion of like one for them, one for me sort of dynamic with filmmaking and also just um, whatever allows you to play again. Yeah. It's also like, yeah, it's also like failure. Failure is not final. Like if something doesn't go well, you can always rebound and do something else. Right. I think that's something as a, as creatives and people that make projects you, if something fails in quotes, you, you can be so devastated from it, but there's always something else you can do. And that was a big lesson for me. Yeah. And also, sorry to add on to that, uh, something that we've talked about a little bit, cause Mike and I, we don't always have the same taste either. Like there's things that I want to do that he's not particularly interested in necessarily vice versa. And I think that a lot of it too is like defining what type of success you're looking for. I think of some of my favorite films of all time, like they were enormous flops. They did not do well uh, commercially or even critically at times, but in in the long tail, they have a reputation for becoming something or, or being something that was ahead of its time or something like that. And like, 
the momentary success of something for me is not really indicative of quality necessarily, but if you can define the type of success that you want out of, is this a wholly artistic pursuit? Like my other documentary previous to this was a wholly artistic pursuit. Um, the margins for success were like, how do I make this work on a creative level? And that was it. Um, versus something like Generation Freedom, the current the current documentary was more like, how do we relay this information? How do, you know, it was a very like structured experience that we were trying to craft and then inject really creative uh, decision-making into it. So it's def definition of margins, I guess. Yeah, totally. I love yeah. literally everything about what you just said, by the way, just like defining success for yourself in like the broad scheme of things. And also on a project by project basis, like yeah. you just speak in my language, man. So <laughs> give me, um, give me like a condensed version of what happened in between that, that first feature and generation freedom. Because you yeah. guys have just a boatload of a boatload of experience God. working together and probably trying to monetize projects and all sorts yeah. of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot happened. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll uh, condense it as best as possible. Yeah, man. I mean, I, so much has happened. I don't know where to even begin. But Chris and I, beyond the the films that we make, we also work professionally. Um, in the field. So I, I got on a TV show called Grimm, um, started working my way, my way up in the, uh, the production realm. So started as a PA, then became a coordinator. And then, um, you know, I would get on freelance projects around Portland, um, finally went and worked for an agency, um, just getting producing experience in a professional sense. And Chris did the same, um, mm -hmm. with, shooting and editing and being a director, um, commercially as well. Um, so those were the two paths that we took. And in the meantime, Chris was making more feature films and we created our, sh our blog Showhawk, um, showhawk.com in the meantime, where we talked about working in the industry and creating projects on the side. Um, I'm missing anything, Chris. No, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, there was definitely the only things I would add to that are in the immediate aftermath of Painted City, there was the kind of big, for lack of a better term, come to Jesus moment between the two of us of just sort of like, what does all this mean and where do we go from here? And uh, it took a while to even get to that point. Um, and I think that was really what prompted both of us taking a really professional track for a little bit and just sort of yeah. seeing how we could rally our careers and like this wasn't going to be the 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 levees bursting open and we would suddenly be career feature filmmakers we had to you know kind of figure out a different trajectory and i had while mike was in school in in eugene i had actually uh dropped out and was working for a, a startup that, doing video editing. So that was my first industry job. And that was while we were making Painted City. Um, that startup failed. And then I had to kind of like figure out a way <laughs> through that as well. Um, but yeah, then the documentary, my, my follow-up feature, uh, Light, sort of arose from a lot of the failings of Painted City from a creative standpoint. And then... Um, yeah, that also led to a lot of career doors opening and pretty much where I'm at now as well. Yeah. So that's the only stuff I would add to that. Yeah. So yeah. your feature your feature opened up some career doors for you? 
Yeah, just the very act of making it really. Um, who I met in the process, um, the, the guy who produced it, really good friend of mine. Um, I now work on a team with him at a like a company doing more industrial stuff. Um, so yeah, just from that very base door, but also just the experience of uh, kickstarting that film uh, with him. And then also the sort of the promotional knowledge that I learned from that led to some freelance work, which eventually snowballed into an actual job that I hated and then <laughs> led to this job that I have now. So, which I love. So it's sort of a, yeah, it's life will take you in every a million directions, but long winding road, but no, it's, right. it's awesome how something like that can just, without you really anticipating or, or planning for it, like it will open doors, you know, even if it's not absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. So that brings us to generation freedom. And I want to spend just a shit ton of time talking <laughs> about generation freedom. Cause I like, I've been on your email list, the show hockey email list for probably since the first day I found Showhawk and how long yeah. have you guys had it? Cause I think I've, I've God. been on the list since like early 2015, maybe. I think that's right. Yeah. That sounds I about we, right. Yeah. I think we launched probably March, 2015. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're online. Yeah. Business I was actually siblings. trying to find you. Yeah. I was, I was trying to find you in my uh, email for earlier to set up this call. And I saw when you signed up and I think it was, um, I think it was 2015, early 2015. So you're right. That's crazy. Well, but no. So anyway, I get distracted by things, but like I'm, um, <laughs> I was watching this launch. What is it like December and January and, and February this year? I don't remember exactly, but yeah. you guys did something that I haven't seen before in regards to launching yeah. a feature film. Um, and there's so many different things I want to talk about, but the first thing I want to talk about is the, the business model and essentially combining a feature film with education for a niche market and then building out different tiers and different packages for your audience. So people have the, the option to, to spend more and go deeper with, with these people that you interviewed. So I'm, I'm just curious how you two came to that whole model. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it was a long journey to get to that model um so chris and i have been planning this feature out for about three years um and it's it did not start we did not start the project thinking that we would actually launch it this way it was something that we really discovered through the act of making the project. Um, and just for context, so people know what the project is about, it's for entrepreneurs in the 21st century. So whether you're interested in creating a micro business or an online business, um, which is what Chris and I are, are very interested in, um, putting Showhawk together, we really wanted to do a lot of this digitally sell our films digitally. And so we really came to the conclusion we should make this film about what we're interested in. We're putting this business together. There's all these podcasters and influencers and authors already talking about this stuff. We should go talk to them, pick their brains, sit in the same room so we can really boil it down and put it into a film. And so the act of actually making the documentary, we came up with the launch while we were going through it. And 
we were looking at these other business models outside of filmmaking. And I think that's where the idea really started because you can get so wrapped up in what independent filmmakers are doing, what the studio system is doing. And we were looking at other businesses out there, specifically educational content, because we are making an educational documentary. Um, Chris has worked in the educational space for quite a long time. So he knows what people are looking for in an educational product. And so we started looking outside of the film industry and what other filmmakers are doing to come up with a unique original package because, you know, philosophically, Chris and I have gone back and forth on this. We've, we spent three years making this film. Why, why should we be pigeon held to just selling it for one price point? You know, you look at things like criterion collections or, um, you know, extended bundles that these studios put out. And we really asked ourselves, why can't we do that? You know? Yeah. I think the analogy that Mike, I'm trying to remember what exactly you said. We went back and forth about the pricing structure and things like that quite a bit, just sort of debating and the analogy that, what was it you said, Mike? It was like, which one was it? Why should, (laughs) no, it was like, why should, such and such product that takes no time costs this much when a film that takes years to make is pigeonholed to $20. It doesn't make sense. And like logically I get it, you know, like I, I, or like an album, it's the same, not that people are those anymore, but it's the, it's the same thing. It's like these artistic or these uh, kind of sweat equity labors of, of, of love take that they're pigeonholed to a specific price but there's so much more flexibility in other products that take less time so that was sort of where we landed and then it's also just like we were constantly 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 asking the question like at each tier in the pricing which i'm sure we'll get into a little more because there's three tiers to the pricing for the film uh, at each tier, we were constantly just like, is this enough value? Is this enough value to justify this money? Does totally. like, we never, ever, ever wanted it to be like, we're trying to fleece anybody for the, Absolutely. we wanted to give more than what it was worth and make sure that those every dollar was accounted for yeah. in, in what they were getting. Absolutely. Yeah. That's something we, we came back to time and time again. We, we just kept asking, like Chris said, is, is this something that is actually worth $69 or $139. And we, we needed to feel comfortable walking away and saying, yes, yes, this is absolutely worth that price point. And, you know, like you, you look at, I think Chris, you mentioned musicians a little bit ago, you look at musicians who they're on the radio, you hear their song they're not making a ton of money by having their song on the radio. It's exposure. It's good exposure for them and their brand. But an audience member is willing to pay a different price point to go see them in concert. Or they're, they're willing to pay something different for a piece of merch. And so we came at it from that point of view. Like, What experience are we going to give to our audience by offering them this middle tier or this higher tier? 
and how can we give them the best experience possible? And that's really how we came to our pricing structure and our decision to approach it this way. Yeah. It's kind of amazing to me how much your just journey mirrors my own and how we've come to a lot of the same conclusions just completely separately. Cause like I've been working in the, in the marketing world for a lot of education companies for years. Like I decided to make my living that way instead of yeah. like freelancing and, and working day jobs and whatnot. Totally. But it was the same thing. It was like, how do we bring these, these other business models, um, and apply them to film. And like, there's so much crossover and so much potential, but because I don't know, it's just, I think the culture of film that we're all sort of stuck in this, um, really antiquated, ineffective business system that serves literally nobody's needs except for like a handful of middlemen who clog the whole thing up. Like, yeah, but everybody's stuck in it and not really, I don't know. I'm just going to rant. Yeah. No, I mean that, (laughs) Uh, we should say that at this point we have not put the film on iTunes. We haven't put it on Hulu. Uh, yeah, it's on no, no major on, platforms at all whatsoever. Yeah. We're, you know, we're, we're forestalling that as long as we can. Yeah. Because the way that we have our, our pricing structure at the moment, the profit margins benefit us, the creators, Whereas if we put it on iTunes, we have to split. We, we you have a split with that platform, and you also don't own the customer. You exactly. don't have their email. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I also I, feel I would be remiss if I didn't interject something just because I've I've heard conversations like this on other podcasts and interviews and certainly read them and I think we all have. Uh, the one thing that I want I would want to insert that I haven't heard anybody say is I think or I haven't heard anybody highlight specifically is that I don't know that this is possible with every kind of film. Yeah. I don't know that this, I think that the, the traditional rollout of a film in the digital space to iTunes, to, you know, the, uh, iTunes to different, each platform rolling out the windows or whatever, or from theatrical to iTunes, to TV, to blah, blah, blah. Like, that makes more sense for certain films. Sure. It's a, it, it's case what, by case. You yeah. gotta, you gotta put it in the context of the project. And yeah. And this project was very much crafted with this release in mind, mm-hmm. but n- neither the, the release strategy nor wanting to make the film ever superseded one another. It was like, they have to work in tandem and yeah. it has to be something that we give a shit about and that we can be invested in. But that we can also experiment with releasing this way with some surefire kind of like, I think this will work out. Yeah. Like, well, at the very least we'll break even. I love that. Exactly. The only thing I would add to that is like, that's what I've been working on for basically the last two years now is like, how do we apply a model like this to various types of narrative films? How do we apply it to Mm -hmm. the launch of a web series? How do we apply it to really any kind of project that you want to launch within a niche and be able to stack additional bits of value into this launch so that people end up driving up that, that average order value beyond, you know, 10, 15 bucks at the, at the very high end. Most people don't even pay that for a film anymore. Um, But like, that's, that's kind of my, my life's work at this point is cracking that code. And I think I'm, I think I'm there, but I could also be fooling myself, which is always possible. But, (laughs) um, all right, let's talk about the, let's talk about the tiers and, and what specifically is included. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So 
at this point, we have three different tiers. Um, we have the film itself, which is um, 19 bucks, And then the middle tier is 69 And then the highest tier is 139 And so the way we structured it, again, like we said, it's we're really packing as much value with this educational content for the middle and the higher tier. And so the documentary itself is structured in a way to take you, take the audience through a journey of coming up with an idea, putting the logistics into practice to actually start a business and then how to launch the business. And then the middle tier takes you a little further. It, it comes with, um, it really is like a, an instructional course almost. Yeah, it's like a course mixed with like a, a extended like Blu-ray or DVD where exactly. we have basically like extra features, but they're elongated sections of the movie essentially. Yeah. So we had 16 interviews, which amounted to, what do you think, Mike? Like roughly is about 14 hours of, of footage half, total, yeah. like of interview footage with these experts. And, you know, obviously to structure the documentary, we broke it into the sections that you see in the film, but those sections started out being, you know, enormous. And then we had to pare them down, prune the tree, so to speak. Right. So what you see in the bonus is these sections in far more depth and yeah. far more detail. I mean, honestly, it's, it, I think the initial film started out as at four hours. Yeah. That <laughs> was the first slowly- cut. Slowly slowly trimmed it down to an hour and a half. So there's, there was all this stuff that we had on the cutting room floor that we were able to build the extended features from. And we had so much additional footage that we were like, we can build out this, this huge library of assets that people can access and they can kind of pick and choose. It's almost like, um, you know, one of those novels where you can go through and, and pick, the way to get to the ending choose your own adventure yeah. you choose your own adventure and then the highest tier takes that a step further and it gives you access to everything that we shot it has um it includes the um the middle tier and of course the documentary plus a bunch of additional guidance really for you to to start your own project worksheets and things like exactly. that, that you can use to really build your idea into something. And then all the entirety of the interviews in full. So you can go through each of them if you really want to nerd out and, and yeah. get the full experience. That's the full criterion collection right there. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> more, but that's kind of the thing too, is like, that's more than any criterion thing I've ever seen. That's and that's true. like, that's something that I've always thought about when I watch documentaries is like, God, I could watch that entire interview with that one person who's in here for, you know, 45 seconds. So to me, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's like yeah. if, you, if you're really interested in the topic, like there have been, I watched that documentary, uh, The Minimalist one on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Like a while back. It was fine, but there were a couple of interviews with people who just sort of like dipped in and out of it. And there are people that I really like. And I was like... Like Leo Babauta, who's just in there for like two minutes and then... Yeah, gone. like I think yeah. Sam Harris is in there for a couple minutes or something. And I was like, come on, dude. Like, <laughs> I, I want to I hear everything he has to say about this. So um, I think it was that one. It might have been a different doc. But in, in any case, like that always kind of struck me as like, 
if you're really into the topic or like at the very least really into the people, like why, why would you not want the option to, to see all that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to hit on that even further, it's like our goal with the bigger bundles is to get people from A to B as quickly as possible. So it's, it's really structured in a way to give people, not that the documentary isn't, you know, the, the structure is there, but the bigger bundles really holds their hand through the process. So it just takes it a step further to help them get started as quickly as possible. Right. Like I think the documentary is a really great like um, spark that can give you like I've, I've had this experience with a few people who've watched it who I know like it gave them enough information to feel like, oh, that idea I've been tossing around in my head actually might be doable. Right. And they can see a, a, a little clear path to, you know, whether they want to sell a product on Etsy or whether they, I mean, we really did make this for, for creative people. We're creative people. And yeah. it's like, how do you make a living like as a creative person? Um, so that was a huge motivation for, for making this film. And there's all these people with these creative ideas who, you know, we get kind of beat it, get it beat into us that it's just not possible. Yeah. And the, the meaning behind the, the idea behind the film was that it would kind of bust through that, make them feel like, okay, that idea that I have might be tenable. Here's at least the, like the 3000 foot view of like what the steps are to get there. And then if they get really, really enthralled by it, uh, they can do either of the bigger, you know, packages that'll sort of really push them along the trail and give them the, the actual tools and the resources that they need to really push their idea through. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the secret sauce there is that you're creating a desire in people and people don't, won't necessarily pay a lot of money for, for just mindless entertainment for an hour or three. But yeah. when it comes to creating new possibilities for people's lives, like Absolutely. possibilities that are, <laughs> that are enthralling, that break them out of the humdrum existence of like a cubicle job or, or like working as a barista or some crap. Like, yeah, that's something that's worth paying for. That's something that's worth paying perhaps a shit ton of money for. Like, Absolutely. Eh. and I, I think yeah. that's what fuels like the entire online education industry is, is just like hope and dreams and absolutely whatever but yeah i mean no no it's true no i mean like chris said we we really made this movie for ourselves we were creatives we wanted to learn how to put a business together a creative business and so every step step of the way we were able to ask ourselves like is this something that we would be interested in if we if we didn't have this information like is how would this help us and like you said it it's really selling those you're helping people get to their goals. And um, that was really the process for us. I mean, there's, there's a ton of, um, you know, books and, and podcast interviews about, you know, creating your perfect audience member, but we were really the, the perfect audience member for this. It was so incredibly helpful. We did Which is definitely that. an advantage. Absolutely. When you're coming up with like, packaging something and things like that because going through that filter that i was talking about before of like you know is this enough value we're really just asking ourselves and asking each other like would you pay for this absolutely would you would you put down this kind of money like i subscribe to masterclass Mm -hmm. and for me it's like 
you know, I lie to myself at the beginning of the year and I'm like, I'm going to watch all these this year. And I usually get through like one or, you know, maybe two. Uh, the first year I had it, I got through like three and they were great. Like I'm not, not they're amazing. They're outstanding and un- unprecedented access to these incredible people um, and their processes, processes. But I think that the idea that we, we were put, like pricing even our biggest bundle at less than... A, like a, a year's subscription yeah. to masterclass or that the, even the mid tier bundle contains about as much content, if not even a little more as a mass, more than a masterclass. Um, it's like, would that be worth it? Absolutely. That would be worth it just yeah. by virtue of how much stuff is in there. So that's yeah. kind of also, I'm coming so, up yeah. on my masterclass renewal. And <laughs> I don't think I've watched anything since the first like month. Oh, Did you catch that? You didn't catch the David Lynch one? No, but I keep hearing it's really just off the wall and not it's great. pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty weird. I didn't think it was not great. I'm fascinated by him anyway, but you end up just watching it and being more fascinated by him <laughs> than anyway. Than the I think content. Chris, really quick, I think you had a really good point. It's really to put the the price point in a context for people because you can you can spend your money on a lot of stupid stuff i was in vegas last weekend unfortunately and saw the amounts <laughs> of money that people were just throwing around on the stupidest stuff but if you can really when it comes down to education like you said that is something that people will pay a premium for because it's it's fulfilling a desire it's filling a it's fulfilling a hole in their life. Um, and we're really helping someone get to that level. It's not just stupid, mindless entertainment. And so, you know, it's actionable. That was the word that Mike kept using. It's actionable. You kept using through the entire process of like, is this actionable? Yeah. Cause that's going to be the selling proposition to it. Yeah. Totally. So you can inspire people and then what? And then yeah. it's like, is this actionable? Are these steps that they can logically take? Yeah. And it's really, I mean, we kept asking ourselves throughout the entire creation of this project. We kept going back, thinking about the audience, thinking about ourselves, asking like, what, if we were in this position two or three years ago, what were our hopes and dreams at that point? Who do we aspire to be? Um, and we really, we dove as deep as possible on all of those questions. And one way we actually went about doing that was, you know, there are a lot of books and there's podcasts on this topic. This is the first documentary I've ever seen. And so I would go through and read the negative reviews of those podcasts and the positive reviews and the three-star reviews just to see what people liked, what they didn't like. And that was really helpful. Um, And you can really apply that to any project. You can take a look at what's already out there and you can go take a look on Amazon, see what the bad reviews say, and then take that and apply it to your project and make it better. And, you know, we took it a step further. We would actually, we, we posted the full documentary on Reddit um, before it was finished just to get feedback. And we would have real conversations with people just to get a gut check to see if we were on the right chat on the right track. And that really helped inform the final product. And uh, Mike, actually, I have 
Did you start doing the Amazon reviews thing after our first interview with Pat? Or was that uh, something that you were doing from the outset? Because that was something that I learned while making it. I, that was the other cool thing. Is like we were doing things that we were yeah. learning as we went. I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, we would interview these people and then basically we we would turn around and apply it to the project. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, would let, we, would, we would literally sit with these guys and then like an hour later be like, that's a really good idea. We should do that for this, this documentary. Yeah. Let's yeah. go do it. Totally. That's cool. So yeah. I have a... There's so many things I want to get into. Just it's nuts. But I have one quick follow up question, just based on that idea that what you created in the documentary is both inspirational and mm -hmm. actionable. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you have any kind of like system set up to um, like for people who just bought the documentary, because I think the ideal is they come out the other end and they're inspired and they're going to want more just by nature of having watched this thing. Like, do you have any kind of system set up to upsell them to the higher tiers? Like once yeah. they're ready for that? We do. Yeah. Give so, them a lot of free stuff. <laughs> that's true. Um, so yeah, the way we have it set up is an email autoresponder series. So when they purchase the documentary, they are purchasing through a, a system called Gumroad, um, which is basically a shopping cart that sends you um, the the file to the documentary, or you can stream it. Um, they're then put on our email list, where they receive a ton of added value content. Um, they're essentially bonus features where Chris and I we sit around and talk about how you can dive even further and then we take examples from the documentary and we discuss it and they go through this email sequence where we essentially you know we lay out the the higher tiered items for them um and then so we have three uh videos where we basically take them through the structure of creating a business and then a fourth video where we essentially lay out the, uh, the entire project for them. And that's the sales video. Um, that's where we basically talk about um, the positioning of the pricing and why we priced it that way. And we're very transparent about it. You know, we're not trying to, we're not trying to, um, like Chris said earlier, fleece anyone. Um, well, but we do put a, it in the right context. Yeah. And it's also a very likely a demonstration of, what you're teaching and what's being talked about in the documentary. So it's kind 100%. of meta in that way. Yeah, it's definitely. super meta. It is. This entire it, it gets, project has been yeah. very meta. <laughs> it gets really, it folds in on itself a lot <laughs> in a cool way though. Like even with the fact that we're learning things and then implementing them as we go, like that, that's a really neat prospect. And that sort of like speaks to our, the fact that we are creatives and we're filmmakers and like, like really, like Mike said, we made this for ourselves to a great extent, like for the people that we were and the, the people that we wanted to be kind of like the artists that we were and the artists that we wanted to be. And like, I, I really can't emphasize it enough. I know that on its face, I think what's interesting about it is that it appeals to just about the broadest audience of people who have ideas and want to do it. Like we've, we interviewed everyone from, uh, like illustrators, professional illustrators to like insurance salesmen yeah. to like custom woodworkers to like uh, a kid that makes high socks. level, a kid that <laughs> makes socks and has a million dollar company and employs his parents. Like 
it's mm-hmm. insanely gangster and like we crazy. it's a crazy uh diverse array of people and, and aspirations and and I, I i love that aspect of it that there's there's no we we tried to keep every rock uncovered at every step so that people like us who want to have a creative business or people who just you know fucking sell insurance and want to know like how do i sell insurance better and make more money doing that and can the internet help like everyone would get something out of it and i think that it's that almost like a mastermind where like you Mm -hmm. get something from learning how each person does their own thing as well so yeah but like i can't i i really can't overstate like i if i wish that uh i wish that 21 20 like painted city chris and mike had this film (laughs) seriously like i think it would have made a big difference yeah i agree that kind of brings me to a question that i've been thinking about this whole time is just targeting a specific niche and not falling into sort of the age-old filmmaking trap of oh this film I'm making is for everybody. Everybody's going to love it. And then I'll finally be whole or whatever people think to themselves. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, your people think it like, I can't be the, I can't be the only one who has, has had that. Oh, thought, no, actually but, you are. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> never, never that. Damn it. <laughs> I'll be in my therapist's office. <laughs> um, shit. Where was I even going? Um, Natch, uh, marketing yeah. yeah. I don't know exactly what my question is, but it sounds like you, you actually didn't start with a niche in mind, like going at like, Oh, this is going to be a profitable niche, but you yeah. started with yourselves. You started with what you wanted to see out in the world. Yeah. Um, and I guess I'm kind of curious how you, how you extrapolated that out and how you came to the conclusion that, Oh, there's a valuable market here. That's going to be hungry for this thing that we're making. Yeah. I think the conclusion, we came to the conclusion to make this project because like I said earlier, there are a ton of podcasts, books, there's a ton of courses on this kind of information, but there is no documentary. At landscape of, if you, if you really do want to make something that will be profitable. That is one way to do it. You can look at what's out there and then look and see if there is a film or a documentary. And maybe it's not quite in the way that you think the audience would like the, you, it might not be out there in a way that you think the audience is already resonating with it and you can take it and make it your own. And that's really what we did. There are, you know, like I said, there's no documentary out, out there about online business. And so we went out and we made it our own and we put our own stamp on it. And I don't know. Um, yeah, it's just, that's the way we approached it. There was also the process though, of like in kind of contextualizing that place where our interests and the audience meet, I guess, is, is that what you were kind of getting at too? Like, like how, how we sort of bridged the gap or bridged the, the void between like us having the initial interest in the topic and then making that relatable to other people. Is that? Yeah. And, and how, um, you took what you were, you wanted to make and essentially validated that it would be profitable within this larger context. 
Yeah. yeah, I think that speaks to what Mike was also saying about the, you know, the Amazon reviews and hitting Reddit yeah. and, and yeah. sort of probing the marketplace. But Mike did a lot of other uh, sort of like exercises along those lines as well. Ooh, I want to hear about exercises. Ooh, the exercises. Yeah, I mean, it it goes back to what I was saying, like the questions that we would we really ask ourselves. And one thing I did do was plug in the the Facebook um, profiles of the people that we were interviewing. So we could see the audience demographics. You can actually go into, if you have a Facebook business account, you can go into what's called the Facebook ads manager, and you can take a look and see who the demographics are that follows a certain brand or a certain influencer or author. And it's really helpful to envision the type of people that are following something that you feel like your audience may resonate with. And so I took um, the people that we interviewed, like Pat Flynn, John Lee Dumas, um, Andrew Warner, Paula Pant. I plugged them into the Facebook ads manager and it essentially spits out all the demographics of the people the audience that follows those influencers. And so I was able to take that to Chris and say, you know, the people that follow Pat Flynn are 21 to 35 and they're interested in these books and these podcasts. And it really helped paint a picture of the audience. So it took it a step further from talking about us being the ideal customer to really diving in and seeing who the people are that support these influencers. And I really sat down and started asking questions like, why do these people follow someone like Pat Flynn? Are they unhappy at their job? Are they, are they stressed out because, you know, they don't have enough money? Um, what would our documentary show these people? And so these were really helpful exercises for Chris and I to talk about because they contextualize the message that we were really trying to put out into the world. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I think that's a really good segue into just talking about influencers in general, um, <clears throat> because you nab some pretty big fish on this thing, like Pat Flynn and John Lee Dumas and Paula Pant and all of them. Um, yeah. First of all, way to go. High Thank five, you. internet <laughs> high five. Um, I'm also just curious about the, the process for making something like that happen. How do you, as small fish filmmakers, um, yeah. no disrespect, I love you guys. Um, <laughs> but how do you, how do you nab those big fish? Like what's the process for outreach and follow up and actually making something like this happen? It's very time consuming. <laughs> <laughs> um, disheartening at times. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, like you said, we are small fish filmmakers and we needed to get the attention of people that we thought would complement the film really well. And so the way we approached it was to really put our skills to task and show what we could do. And so we made a pitch video. Actually, we made individual pitch videos that we sent out to each of these influencers. And so for example, we made a video specifically for Pat Flynn 
where we had a, a whole intro where we were talking about him, um, how much his podcast meant to us, um, specific episodes that were really inspiring. So we made it very personal to him because he, I mean, he's a guy that gets, I think he said, you know, maybe a thousand emails a day. He has a ton of traffic to his site. He has a ton of followers on Twitter and Instagram. And so his attention span is very short for these kinds of pitches that he's getting. And we're going up against people that are trying to get on his podcast or trying to pitch him to be a partner on a product. Yeah, people and with PR agencies doing that PR, work for exactly. him. Right? <laughs> or yeah. big wigs trying to get him on their, you know, show or something like that. Totally. So the yeah. like actual more valuable propositions to him. Absolutely. And so we put together this pitch video essentially walked him through what the documentary would be. You know, so the the structure of the documentary, how we saw it coming together. And Chris did a great job with, um, you know, putting infographics and, and really making it feel like they polished it a lot. We it was very polished. It we felt like it to be a proof of concept of like, Hey, we may, you may not have heard of like. us, but we know what we're doing. Yeah. This is what we can do. So and we're going to represent you in polished. the best. Way. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You can, tr you can trust that you're going to look good and sound good. And yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and so we did a lot of those videos. Um, part of it is a bit of a numbers game. Um, I think that in total, I reached out to about 67 people and we ended up with 16. So it's actually not a bad ratio when you think about it. Um, but that said, we did get some of the guys we interviewed, we were initially turned down and then we were so persistent that we were able to come back. And the first big fish that we got was Pat Flynn. Um, he initially said, no, I came back and negotiated with him a little bit. And he's like, all right, I have some time in six months. And what, okay. Like, what do you mean by you, ne you negotiated with him a little bit? <laughs> I was, I was, I was, <laughs> I, um, I was, I was just very persistent. I was like, Hey man, like I'm a, I'm a fan, you know, like how can we, how can we make this as easy as possible? And well, that, that's his, another his thing. Initial, you know? His initial reason for not doing it was that he was just too busy. Right. That exactly. was his original pass. Exactly. So, and so, you know, yeah. it wasn't like, no, no, screw you guys. I don't like you. It exactly. Was, exactly. It's like, I, I have no time this year. And I was like, that's cool. We can wait till next year. And, um, we also made it as easy as possible for him to just show up for the interview, put on a mic and then walk out and he was done. Yeah. Did you guys like fly down to San Diego for that? And we did. Yeah. So, um, we, I talked with his assistant. I found a studio that was, you know, a couple blocks from his house. Um, so he could literally get in his car, drive two minutes, show up, do the interview and then leave. And and it was a studio that he had used and was familiar with and exactly. knew the people there. So exactly. it was kind of like a second, like a, he had recorded stuff there. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was that too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, a, that was a good learning for us just to make it as easy as possible for these people to say yes. And so another thing that we did 
was we went to a big marketing conference in San Diego a year later um, that had, I think, I think we interviewed six people when we were there. And so we were able to get, um, I think it was, I can't remember everyone we interviewed, but John Lee Dumas was one of them. Andrew was Warner was one Andrew of them. Andrew Warner, John Lee Dumas. Yeah, uh, yeah no. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm but we, oh, Chris Ducker. Chris, Chris Ducker is there. But essentially, what we were able to do was take the interview with Pat Flynn and basically create a little sizzle reel out of it. So then we could go back to those people that initially told us no, like Andrew Warner initially said no, Chris Ducker, same thing. And we showed them what we were doing with Pat Flynn's interview. And then we lined it up with their conference date um, at Social Media Marketing World. And we said, hey, we have this uh, conference room that we're renting. We're going to be there. You guys might have a little downtime. And here's what we're doing with the project. If, you know, there's 20 minutes in between a couple of your sessions, if you could swing by and give us a little bit of your time, that'd be amazing. And again, it was about making it as easy as possible for these people to show up and say yes. And we did six interviews back to back to back in two days, which uh, it was a bit of a, a bit of a rush, but you know, yeah, because we, we had to reset the room and everything every time because we didn't want it to look like we were in the same place for all those interviews. So exactly, we that was a little set dressing. Yeah, that was probably some of the most baller ass shit we did on the entire thing. <laughs> to be honest with you, just because it was so laborious and intensive, but it was such a like it was Mike's idea to do it. It was such a brilliant idea to concentrate all of these, like we said, the big like a lot of these big wigs in one sort of fell swoop, and that was the last those are among the last, those are two, two of the last three days of shooting basically on the entire thing. And in between Pat Flynn and all those people, we were also collecting what we were calling the case studies, which is the bulk of the movie, which is the people who actually, you know, the, the people who have the Etsy store, the people who have the insurance business, the people, the, the coach, we you know, whatever, uh, the other layer were the Pat Flynn's and the Chris Duckers and the Andrew Warners, who are the sort of the experts of the of the piece. And right. in, but in between Pat Flynn and all those other experts, we collected all these case studies. So they also factored into the sizzle reel that we sent out to all those people. It's like it's not just you know Pat. It's we're, we're telling a bigger story here about a lot of other people. Yeah. And so basically, that last leg at Social Media Marketing World. Uh, then led into our getting our very last case study, which was uh, Cole Kushner of of um, Dissect Podcast, because um, he was in Sacramento and it was you know pretty close by. So yeah, it all just sort of fed into each other, and the the last lap was just <laughs> intense, but it was great though. <laughs> yeah. I kind of hate the word hustle, but like what you guys just described for all this is like some baller ass hustle. Like <laughs> that is. No, that's legit. And like doing what it takes to get to get attention and make personalized videos and be persistent. Like that's that's what it's all about. Yeah, man. Um, it takes a I'm lot curious. of work. I'm curious. Yeah, I can't even it takes imagine. A lot dude. of work. Probably yeah. put more work into those than a lot of people do on just a, on a film itself. So <laughs> totally. Yeah, um, I mean, you got to cut okay. through the noise, though. It's true. Yeah, whatever yeah. it takes. Yeah. Um. So I'm curious. 
how have you been able to leverage some of these big names in your own marketing? I'm like, I, I don't think I'm on a lot of these people's lists. Um, yeah. I don't think they promoted you directly in any way. Did they? It depended. Um, some of them uh, tweeted it out or shared it with their Facebook following, but nothing on their email list. Um, so it was a lot of indirect, you know, it was more of a, a branding play from our point of view um, to show that we had the credibility of these big names um, rather than asking them to really promote it to their to their list. Um, and we are, we can get into this a little bit, but we are starting to actually run paid ads um, yeah and target so, those audiences that's yeah, what i was exactly. gonna ask yeah and so you know once you start running paid ads you can really hone in on their audience um if you're running facebook and instagram ads you can actually track their audience and then promote essentially create specific ads for example paula pants facebook following we could make an ad specifically for her and what she brought to the documentary and then show it to her audience. And so that's what we're, we're playing around with at the moment. So no, they didn't, they didn't necessarily share directly with their list, but we are leveraging it in other ways. It's kind of the same as with any sort of like star power in any film. I mean, the amount that a a famous entity can actually promote on their own versus just the the studio leveraging their brand is yeah, pretty exactly. disproportionate. <laughs> exactly, but you got superstars within this this yeah. pretty. It's it's a small niche, relatively speaking, compared to like the the mass media market, whatever you want to call oh, it. For but sure, yeah, yeah, that's true, man. Yeah, but, you, but it's a very got, active and involved niche. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that is true. That is true. That's so cool. Uh, okay, um, what's next? What's next? So. I think, oh, so there was one other little small question that I had in regards to you guys launching the film. Yeah. And I seem to remember you having like a little launch window where you offered the film for free. Yeah. Yeah. That was something we wanted to play around with a little bit because like we mentioned earlier, they would get on that email autoresponder series where they're essentially upsold the bigger packages and so that was something we wanted to play around with. It wasn't necessarily a strategy we were going all in on. Um, and that is, it's a good side note to say, a lot of these strategies that we're trying, we're just, we're seeing what works. And we're if riffing. it doesn't, yeah. yeah, we're riffing. You know, we have, a, we have a list of marketing ideas. If something works, great, let's do more of that. If it doesn't, then, you know, we'll move on. And so... That was something we tried early on um, just to get some initial buzz about the project. It was really to get people talking and get more word of mouth rather than um, necessarily direct sales. We definitely did get direct sales out of it um, because of the amount of value that we were giving away. We gave away the film. We gave away all of our bonus content. And there is some sort of reciprocity that's built with an audience. You know, when you're giving away that much free content and then you give them an offer to buy a bigger package, that is enticing for people. Um, and it worked It worked well. I don't know if it's something that we'll do in the future, um, but it was an interesting experiment. It was fun. 
And it was sort of more of like a soft launch. Like it was, it was yeah. more, I mean, Rob, you and you and I are Facebook friends. So I think that's probably mostly how you might've come upon that. I'm not really sure, but we, that was mostly for, uh, like friends and family as well. Like we didn't really heavily put that out there. Not that we had yeah. any opposition to it, but it was more just like, yeah, we wanted to test it. How this works on a small scale and like, let's do the opposite of what we've always kind of done, which is like, let's sink, you know, yeah, a few exactly. thousand dollars into a premiere and get 500 people in a room and, and yeah. like put it to that. Like, let's start this off really small and let's roll this out really slow. Yeah. Let's just take our time. And like Mike said, do lots of experiments yeah. and abandon what doesn't work and stick to what does work. And yeah, yeah it's just sort of, it's counterintuitive for a film for sure. Yeah. But I think that's kind of attractive too. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's try something different. Yeah. That's cool. So given that this is a show basically for indie film entrepreneurs, people who want to do things differently, like I'm sure there's a lot of knowledge both contained within the film that you just made and with the, just the whole journey that you've been on. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you could distill just some high level lessons that people interested in a similar path could take and run with it if they were so inclined for clarity a similar path uh in terms of documentary filmmaking just filmmaking in general or yeah just uh i'd say like niche indie filmmaking like going Got after niches that are online totally yeah it's cool. a good question man it is um I mean, my biggest takeaway from this project is the amount, <laughs> the amount of effort that you have to put in just, just to get something off the ground. Um, and so I would, I would make sure that your idea is something that you want to stick with for a couple of years before you sink everything into it. And whether that's validating with an audience um, or, you know, just talking to people to make sure it's a good idea. That was my biggest takeaway because uh, like you learned, it took so much effort just to get these interviews going. And then it was a lot more effort to actually get the film going. And now it's a lot of effort to get the marketing going. So each stage is, it's just, we're pushing uphill, you know, there's so much resistance to what we're doing and you have to cut through that and you really have to be committed to your idea. That's my biggest takeaway. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I would say, I think it's sort of a small collection of things that I really walked away with. I mean, one sort of really cursory thing is like, just just because you're making sort of a just because you're making a documentary that's meant to have educational value and meant to also be entertaining and it uh, it's easy to look at the documentary form and just say it's just interviews with people and some b-roll and maybe some graphics and titles and things like that um and this is true of almost any creative endeavor but certainly certainly of this film like constantly looking at the project and saying trying to be as inventive as possible, not with, just with what you put on the screen, but how you put it on the screen. For instance, our mad 
baller ass dash at the hotel for two days in in the conference room. I was mostly proud of that because it involved a very low sleep night before and Mike and I running around Home Depot and Target picking up as many prop items and backdrops and things like that as possible to make the same space look both different but sellably okay. Um, and that was just the two of us. We didn't have PAs. We didn't have any of that stuff. And it was just all of our possible ingenuity going into that moment. You have to be as inventive as possible from having the, even the idea to do that to how you implement and execute it to make it kind of stand apart. Um, yeah. That's a huge takeaway for me that I don't know that I really had wrapped my head around that level of intensity in that arena until that so that was a big takeaway and that really matriculated through the entire process editing how do we show how do we display certain screens and graphics and things like that there's the great curse of you know nobody wants to make a movie about people on a computer yeah because it's (laughs) innately stands to be boring so how do you make this interesting and intriguing you know things like that so just be being as inventive as possible with even the simplest the simplest thing and then also i would say um the probably because mike already talked about the validation because that was honestly one of the biggest things i learned from this process um i would say that also the how do i put this the 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 willingness and ability to try something and if it doesn't work abandon it yeah that sort of not being so egotistically or narcissistically stuck to something because you think it's a good idea it's a lesson i've learned in the past and it's a lesson that i think really struck or really stuck this time. Um, and it was a recurring theme among the people that we interviewed. And it was something that Mike and I both implemented pretty heavily throughout the making of the film. It's just like, let's try it. Yep, we'll try it. Yep. Is that, you know, seems like an interesting idea. Let's give it a shot. Nope. Didn't work. Move on. And mm-hmm. it's carried through the distribution and the marketing as well. So yeah. yeah. Killer. All right. So I've got two more quick questions for you guys before we cool. wrap this thing up. Love it. The- the first is, how'd the launch go, and how is the film doing at this point financially? Yeah, the the way I think about it is this year is our launch year. Like traditional movies, they have so much support staff to get a launch done quickly, and it's just Chris and I running this thing, like. I do the business stuff. Chris does the creative stuff. And we are slowly bringing more people on to help. Like we're hiring a Facebook guy to run ads, run paid advertising. Um, you know, we are, I, I did all the website stuff I did. I wrote all the emails. Um, and so it takes, it takes a long time to implement everything that we want to. And so we've got like a 10,000 foot view of all the things we want to implement. But really, when you look at a calendar with just the two of us, it really, it's going to take a full year. And so we're, I mean, we're about halfway there at the moment. Um, It's been doing well. 
but I think we, like we said earlier, we want to focus more on the things that have been working, double down on those and scrap the stuff that hasn't been working. And so we're doing more partnerships, which is really exciting. We're doing a big partnership with um, a company called Lead Pages. Dude, um, that's kick. Yeah. yeah. That's, thanks, man. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that's rolling out in the next month or so. Um, and then, you know, we're doing more JV partnerships, which is essentially splitting the profits of the film with uh, people that have email lists. So they would promote it to their list. Um, and then the paid advertising. So those are things that we've noticed have, have been working well. So partnerships, um, doing JV launches with lists, people who have lists and then paid ads and the stuff that hasn't worked, we're going to scrap. So the next half of the year is really focusing on those, um, those items. And so hopefully at the end of the year, we can have a better, uh, more concrete like case study for you where we have numbers and show all those details. For sure. And I mean, we, we've already talked about this, but like, this is, this is part one of two and we are going to get into the weeds of, of online marketing and all these different tactics you guys are trying at this point is the, has the film broken even on its budget or anything like, can you, can you share where you're at just like in a ballpark range? As of now it's broken even, um, which is, I mean, that makes me happy. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good success so far. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the way we're thinking about it is we're we're just going to reinvest that money into building out a bigger team to to help us um, market everything, and um, because the more you can reinvest, the more your message can spread, and and the more revenue you're going to make. So that's we're going to take everything that we've made and just keep reinvesting. Exactly. And like, I'm sure you're already planning this, but this is the kind of uh, evergreen product that could have some real staying power within a niche like this, that yeah. people might be watching this five, 10 years from now. Um, totally. That's and, the hope. Yeah. 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 And that was, that was something that we definitely took into consideration when we were designing all the graphics and, and, being very mindful about what we explicitly talked about in the documentary because we didn't want it to age too quickly. We wanted yeah, it. Yeah, we went back and forth a lot about that. Like, what, like, how much do we cover software? How much do we cover specific tools? How much do we just keep it sort of philosophically open? Yeah. And then what Mike also mentioned about the branding, which is also kind of a cool learning experience that kind of dovetails back with your last question is like, we really wanted this to be a pretty contained experience. A, a friend of ours actually equated the experience of watching the movie to going through an app, which I thought was really cool. It's something yeah. I had never really thought of. Um, but I think that that also kind of ties into the website, the film, the poster. It all ties together. The color schemes are the same. The experience of seeing them is essentially the same. The information you're getting, every everything is very cohesive. Even uh, I don't know if this necessarily holds up now with the new website, but uh, even the end credits um, of the the subject matter experts were just ripped directly from our website at the time. Yeah. So it was sort of this kind of holistic experience and creating, yeah. you know, making it a cohesive experience. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's been a really interesting tool to use as well. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure people 
even if not consciously, like they probably subconsciously notice that level of detail and thought. Yeah. And it maybe just induces a little bit of extra trust in what you guys have built and what you guys made. But totally. Hopefully they just at least yeah. see thoughtfulness. All right. Yeah. So here's my big last question for you dudes. All right. Uh-oh. Yeah, here it comes. You oh ready? Boy. Let's do it. And this might actually be like two kind of separate questions, but like, so the first one is what is your hope for the future of independent film? Hmm. That's just a very small question. <laughs> you have 10 That's words. Not loaded at all. <laughs> uh, I mean, for me personally, as like a business guy, I want there to be creators who can make their stories come to life and be able to have a profitable and sustainable way of making money through their art. That's, that's what I would love to see. Um, and that's our goal as at, with Showhawk and what we do. We want to make interesting projects but be able to support ourselves full time. And I would love to see that across the board. Uh, it, it makes me really sad to see Netflix and Disney just gobbling up the entire media landscape. It's just, it's really, really, really rough to see. And I hope that there's more people out there that do something like Chris and I are doing where you're doing it's basically direct distribution and you're you're able to take home more of the profits for yourself so you can have a sustainable life. Hell yeah. yeah. That's yeah. my vision is too, or that's my yeah. vision as well. Like everything I'm working towards is, is that. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's a really great answer. Um, I would say, Short term, one of my big preoccupations, as I'm sure it is for a lot of filmmakers, is um, independent filmmakers, I should say, is what does all this mean for fiction and narrative? I don't think anybody's, Rob, you mentioned that earlier. It's a huge preoccupation of mine. I don't think anybody's really cracked that code yet of how to translate what you can do with like a niche documentary into fiction and narrative, unless it's really genre specific. Yeah. Um, I need to show you guys what I've been working on. Cause I think yeah, you are just going to shit hear. yourselves. All right. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. That's great to or hear. hopefully, hopefully not. Maybe right. no pants will be destroyed. In the process, yeah, hopefully but, yeah. it'll be. Yeah. No, no I, cut, I cut you off. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. That's fine. That, I just got really excited. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a preoccupation of, of mine as well for the short term. And I guess for the long term, yeah, I, utop- my utopian self definitely thinks I, I hope that I hope that what we're experiencing right now is growing pains and that this opens up brand new doors for artists of all types. I feel like when the robot overlords take over, <laughs> the artists are kind of going to be the last ones to go because we're not just punching numbers and we're not just, you know, there's there's a level of mental agility that has to take place to create something from whole cloth. And 
a machine will certainly be able to do that eventually better than us. But I think for now, we, we've got a good chance. So I hope that we can use it to to better the world and that it becomes a little easier. Love it. So where can people find out more about you guys and Showhawk and the movie and whatever yeah. else that you want to point people towards? Yeah, man. Um, so if they, if your audience wants to check out what kind of our, our launch process and um, see what we've been talking about with all the bonus content and all those goodies, they can go to genfreedom.com backslash filmmaker freedom. If they want to check out Showhawk, they can go to showhawk.com. That's S H O H A W K.com. Thank you so much for listening. For the links and resources mentioned in this interview, as well as the full archive of Filmmaker Freedom episodes, just head over to filmfreedomshow.com. And while you're there, feel free to browse around the Filmmaker Freedom website and check out some of the other rad content, including the weekly newsletter. Every Sunday morning, I send out a variety of the most useful, inspiring, thought-provoking stories I've come across that week, as well as some other cool stuff. It'll help you build your skills, master your psychology, and keep up with this ever-changing business. So if you're ready for an email that you'll actually look forward to each week, just head over to filmfreedomshow.com slash newsletter. Also, if the ideas in this show resonate with you, you're a great candidate for Freedom Fighters, which is my private community just for entrepreneurial indie filmmakers. It's totally free to join, but there is an application process to get in. So if you're interested in surrounding yourself with a group of like-minded entrepreneurial filmmakers who will push you to succeed and help you grow, just go to filmfreedomshow.com slash community. And lastly, I'd just like to give one more shout out to my friends over at Music Vine for sponsoring this show. The groovy intro and outro music came straight from their library, of course, and there is loads more where that came from. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, just go to musicvine.com and use the code FILMFREEDOM for 25% off your next order. Once again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you in the next episode of Filmmaker Freedom. Peace. <laughs>